Today is the first day of Advent. And in a culture that sings the praises of being up, 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 happy, happy, joy, joy, 24-7, in our churches and in our businesses and on our radios and televisions, I am grateful for the season of Advent that forces us to ask the question, what is the world coming to? Even so, Advent raises an even more crucial question, and that is, what is coming into the world? Advent signals to us a new age that is on the horizon, yet even now, which we must prepare This is traditionally known as the second coming, or the return of him whom we did not know how to receive from the start. This first Advent Sunday, known as Hope Sunday, also traditionally brings with it language full of lament and grief and disappointment, even apocalypse, pointing to the need for the one who comes into the world as a newborn babe, even though we might expect something more, well, more powerful. In the final analysis, what happens to us is way more significant than what we may make happen. Hearing from Isaiah, the words of lament found in the 64th chapter, verses 1 through 9, May God open up to us an understanding of this word. Oh, you, oh, you who would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when a fire kindles the brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence from ages past. No one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you anymore. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, yet, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. This is the word of the Lord. 
Today, this first Sunday of Advent, is known as Hope Sunday. And Advent at least holds us accountable to that and more. Not only hope, but hope in the darkness. Advent holds us accountable even to the darkness in which sometimes we live and move and have our being. In my favorite Thanksgiving prayer that I offer up at memorial services and funerals, there is a line that goes, we give thanks, O God, for the meaning and hope that lies hidden in the heart of sorrow, disappointment, and grief. It seems paradoxical thinking God and loss and death and hope in the same sentence. Yet, this is the genius of the people of faith and the very genius of what the Bible is all about. In fact, the Bible cannot be understood apart from just such sorrow, disappointment, and grief, and how such an experience serves as the foundation upon which the whole book was written. Most scholars believe that everything in the Bible was composed and ordered because of an enormously painful, tragic experience of loss and trauma. For Israel, it was the complete demolition and loss of their temple, not just their temple, their cult, their faith, their city, all that they believed in, even their God. It happened when the Babylonian army stormed in to Israel in 587 and defiled the temple Uh, took all of the treasures and burned it to the ground. The people understood sorrow, disappointment, and grief. Then they were in exile. And while in exile, they held it together as best they could. But it occurred to those in exile that, you know what, they may not exist forever. And so they need to write down the traditions and stories that they'd been handed down from generation to generation, and as they began to compose or canonize those stories, the Bible was formed. Creation was born in Genesis, as much to tell us that in the midst of chaos, God is still the God of order as chaos. The Bible was composed and canonized in the midst of great loss as they were facing their termination, paradoxically. For Christian Jews, it was the same. It was not the Babylonians, but the Roman army who had swept down into Jerusalem and at that point pillaged and raped and murdered and burned the second temple in 70 AD. And Mark, sitting at his desk composing the first gospel in 70, the same year, knew of that and was writing his gospel because they had expected the Messiah to come again to relieve them from the powers and stresses and traumas of the Roman rule, but Christ had not come. And so Mark knew that he needed to write it down for those who might follow in case there were no more Christians to tell the story. And Matthew and Luke and John followed. The whole Bible was written out of the meaning found hidden in the face of sorrow, disappointment, and grief 
while pointing to the hope that God would redeem that loss, reconcile the brokenness, and in the end, send the Messiah to bring heaven on earth. Now, I think this is painfully clear in this morning's passage I read from Isaiah. The text from Isaiah strips the facade of our stoic and steadfast faith in the midst of enormous loss and reveals instead a vulnerable and all too human experience that we all face eventually, an experience of grief and loss and abandonment. The temple burned. The exile had come and gone. Seventy-five years later, the people from exile had come back to Jerusalem only to face the scattered ruins. Nothing had been done. Now what did they have to live for? Now what? And what was answered by lament? Lament. Which I think is part of the natural cycle of grief. I heard a biblical scholar say that this passage in Isaiah that I just read was the most powerful and profound communal lament found in the Bible. God's chosen ones, God's son, having lost everything and their own identity, everything they understood to be true, having lost even their God, in hiding, experiencing God's abandonment and hiding, ah, It was 9-11 times a million. When for the next two or three weeks in our churches after 9-11, they were chocked full of people wanting to be assured that God had not abandoned us. We have plenty of opportunities in that experience. When a close friend of mine in good shape, working out, strong and vital, had a heart attack at age 50. His temple was destroyed. During that event and immediately after, he was strong as nails getting through the crisis, seemingly unaffected. Denial is a wonderful gift in the midst of crisis. It gives us something that we can move out of the crisis with, a Even if it's a denial of actuality, it it gives us something to keep going. We refuse to give in to the floodgates of chaos, but it doesn't last. Weeks, even months after my friend, when faced with his condition, now with three bypasses, he, like we, was left with the reality that much had been lost When he, like we, are left with only the vacuum and sorrow and grief that cannot be filled, it leads to lament. When he, like we, fall into the stages of grief, including depression and despair, all that can come out of our mouths are woeful cries of lamentation. As if on cue, my friend went into a deep depression, and for months after his bypass surgery, he cursed his plight and God too, day and night lamenting, just like Isaiah. 
Multiply, my friend, again times a million and you get what Isaiah is dealing with. Not just one person whose heart was broken, but a whole nation. And not just any nation, but God's nation. God's nation now upon their return home trying to reclaim what they knew had to be restored. Yet there was nothing to reclaim left. Because according to Isaiah, God had decided to hide his face. So he lifts up his fist and he cries to the heavens, Oh, you that would tear open the heavens and come down. He's challenging God to show up. And not just to show up, but to show up like a man. Show up and bring your strength and might. Come down so that the mountains will quake from your presence. And even in his deep grief, Isaiah was not scared, as they say. He paired off with God, resorting to whatever means he could to coax manipulate and even shame God into being God. He challenged, make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations, your enemies, might tremble at your presence, implying if you're not going to do it for us, the least you can do is to do it for yourself. Save face in front of your adversaries. And then it reminds God who God is, as if God needed reminding From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Now, by God, be God. And finally, he resorts to that basic human default that we all give into blame. It's all your fault. Anyway, Isaiah chides because... You were angry with us, which caused us to sin. You hid yourself from us, and then we transgressed. Now, because of this, there is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of iniquity. In other words, it's all your fault, because you were not present And strong enough. When everything else fails, blame God. It's the low point in grief. Ironically, in faith, it is also the beginning of hope, it is the beginning of the advent of new life. One day, around nine months after such a traumatic death in my own family, I found myself walking along a beach. I was at Fernandina Beach with a gaggle of preacher types at a uh, weekend uh, meeting to try to sort of get our souls back in shape. So I went for a long walk by myself. I put in my earphones and hopped up the music and tried to get in a good fast cadence so that I could get some exercise and After about 30 minutes of communing with the waves and listening to my music, when uh, my endorphins kicked in, 
I was immediately transfixed into a whole new state. I ended up being stopped dead in my tracks, looking up to heaven with my fist in the air, screaming at God, you blank, 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 do something. Where are you? Why? Why? It was Isaiah's lament. And it was, for me, a low point in my grief But from that point on, as I look back, I started to rebuild. I expressed something I thought was dire. And from that point on, a glimmer of light began to show. You know what? God can handle it. Isn't that the point? And in so doing, we come to terms with who we are and whose we are. Lament is not lack of faith. Ironically, it is about faith. It may be about faith in a God that we wanted but did not get. But such lament is grounded in the manure of despair only in order that the seeds of hope may have some place to grow. At the end of my fit of rage, I basically collapsed in a heap, grateful that I was aware of God's presence enough to be angry at God's absence. Grateful that God takes our laments and grief and anger unto himself and suffers for it. And as Christians, we claim God does this in Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, after such lament comes recognition of God's presence where we did not expect it. There's a powerful scene in what may be the most theological recent movie of our time, one of my personal favorites, Forrest Gump. His army lieutenant, Lieutenant Dan, had lost his legs in an explosion in Vietnam. Apparently, Lieutenant Dan had grown up with a long heritage of military people in his family, and one of whom had died in each consecutive war going back to the Revolutionary War. Lieutenant Dan thought it was his time too, but Forrest Gump saved him when his legs were blown off, and from that point on, he was angry at Gump and angry at God. By some quirk of a bet, Lieutenant Dan ended up working for Forrest Gump on his shrimp boat, And on one poignant moment, Lieutenant Dan looked at Gump and said, Where is your God? And Gump said, You know, it was the strangest thing. It was right then that God decided to show up. In the next scene, there is this raging hurricane storm being uh, uh, clambered against the boat. Uh, Gump's trying to hold the boat in the water, and Lieutenant Dan has hoisted himself up on the masthead. He's holding on with one hand while raising his hand to God in the other, shouting, Is this the best you can do? Is this all you've got? Show me what you got. This ain't nothing. Show me what you got. The next scene, it's morning, Advent. And the light has come. 
Lieutenant Dan is sitting on the edge of the boat, no legs, both hands resting on the side. He looks up at Forrest and he says, Forrest, I think I've come to peace. And he pushes off into the water and begins to do a backstroke. And if there has ever been a symbol of baptism in a movie in my life, that was it. Washed clean into new life. Lament is the beginning of hope. Isaiah gives us that gift. He said, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. And then I don't know how long it it is between that final lament and the yet that follows. Months? Years? Yet? He says, yet, O Lord, you are our Father, which is an affectionate term for God, not found in the Old Testament, but four times. You are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter, and we are the work of your hand. And in the end, Isaiah collapses in gratitude and confession, capitulating to God's goodness and godness, not only as our Heavenly Father, but also as the creator of all things, the potter who forms us the pots out of the ground itself. In that moment, Isaiah comes to see that God is God and we are not. And he finds peace and hope in the midst of his pain. Friends, what I want us to see in this is that our laments and cries and anger and despair and final Capitulation is grounded not ultimately in suffering, but in hope. Hope, first, that there is a God to lament to, and hope, second, that in the end God will be God. Hope that in the end all things will be redeemed. Hope that in the end we will not be left in suffering and pain but be reborn into resurrection and newness of life. Not just in the end, by the way, but even now in our very lives, before us in the relationships that we have, before us in the lives we live, before us in the justice we seek. But friends, it is never going to be in a way where the heavens are torn open And the might and power of God comes down, causing the mountains to quake and tremble, the water to boil. That's not going to happen, even though that might be what we want. It's not what we need. Instead, it is in the way of the meek and the vulnerable way of a newborn child whose presence comes to us in the person we claim as Jesus from Nazareth. The Bible claims that this is the face of God. This is what God chooses to reveal to us. Emmanuel, God with us. It is the face of complete love and suffering of a God who not only hears our laments, but knows our sorrow and takes at our pain upon himself. Disappointment and grief 
is God's too, and God uses just that to transform.